Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Hello, if you're new, my name is Rich. I'm part of the team here. And uh, I'm going to be bringing us our kind of penultimate episode in the box set that we've been in of Ephesians. We've got one more episode, season finale, next week. Um, But for today, we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 5, And the first half of chapter 6, quite a big reading, so uh, get ready for that. And we're going to notice in that reading four big areas that Paul speaks about for you and for me as disciples. Uh, Here's the thing, as I read uh, this passage to you, I predict that you're going to have at least three inner responses to the passage. And I wanted to tip you off so you're not shocked or you feel like a baddie if you have some of these responses. I think all of us are going to feel at least these three things. One, rejoicing. You're going to be like, yes, I love this bit. Woo, I hope Rich focuses on that verse. Yeah. Secondly, you're going to feel realization, which is when you go, oh, goodness me, I don't think that I'm living in light of this passage. And I think there's some things I need to change, and I realize that now. And that might feel a little uncomfortable. And thirdly, I think you're going to experience some resistance to this section as well. And by that, I mean an inner allergic reaction that might tempt you to close up and run away from this passage of God's words. Because this passage contains words that have been misused and abused in churches and in homes and on plantations for centuries. And it's going to feel like, I suggest at times, like we kind of wish we could cut some of these bits out of the Bible. You ever find bits like that? But we can't do that. We cannot do that and we must not do that and we need not do that. Because as Krish Kandaya says in his masterful book, God is Stranger, it is the perplexing, head-scratching, culture-clashing moments of the Bible that if we can hang in there and hold our nerve, actually offer us the greatest invitation. Because when God is at his most strange and confusing and otherworldly to us, they're the moments where if we dare to lean in, he might just well speak to us with more clarity than he has at any point in our journey so far. And so as I prepare to speak briefly on four themes from this passage, soberness, the spirit, submission, and slavery, I want you to know that everyone in this room will have a mix of those three reactions And we're not getting it wrong when we feel those things because all true disciples in every culture have had moments of resonance with God's word and moments of resistance because God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. I'm higher than you. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not like any individual culture. It's different to all cultures in all places and at all times and it comes with challenge. And so I want you to today, as you hear his voice, not harden your heart. That's in the Hebrews, isn't it? It says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And do you know the only reason that verse is in the Bible? Because there are many days where you hear God's voice 
and you're tempted to harden your heart, don't. Don't. Ephesians 5, verse 15 to 6, verse 9. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the saviour of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we're members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. For this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother... Things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely. As you would serve Christ, try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we're slaves or free. Masters, Treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. 
remember you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. This is the word of God. Four things for Paul who wants to kind of teach us for themes for us to notice. Firstly, soberness. Verse 18, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Now, if you're here and you're thinking, right, this is what sort of church this is. At the end of Freshers Week, with crises in the world aplenty and a cost of living crisis that we could do something about as the people of God by serving in our city, this is a sort of church that wants to shout, don't get drunk. And if you come to our week of prayer, or rather rise up and make our week of prayer in your pop-up prayer gatherings around the city, you're going to hear about a load of opportunities that are bubbling up around the city for us to be the church that's in the city to serve the city, not just consumed with an individualistic, moralistic vision for personal piety, but being salt and light. And Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. Because that will ruin your life. Is that verse saying to disciples of Jesus, judge and hate anyone who gets drunk? No. Is it saying those who get drunk are excluded from the loving invitation of Jesus? No. Is it saying not getting drunk is the sum total of what it means to be a good egg Christian? No. What's it saying? It's saying, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. And I think just for any real cheeky ones... It doesn't mean, but get drunk with whiskey, Zambuca, Strongbow, crack on, knock yourselves out, enjoy. But I've got a real problem with wine. Um, actually, wine is the most commended of all the drinks in Scripture. And so it, that's not the point. The general point is don't get drunk. And the spirit, helpful, different spirit, yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because it doesn't go well. It'll lead you to all sorts of stuff you regret and that's not good for you or others. And if you're a follower of Jesus here, remember that's who's being written to. If you're a follower of Jesus here, that's a command. Do we obey that one? Now what comes next is really interesting. Like so many of the do nots of scripture, this one is immediately followed by an instead. And in Paul's mind, that instead to a toxic relationship with alcohol is be filled with the Spirit. That's our second theme, the person of the Holy Spirit. To Paul, there's something that he diagnoses under the surface that the Ephesians are looking for, searching for, reaching for when they drink too much that can only be met by a filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, if I was telling you not to get drunk, I would say, don't get drunk. Instead, be a good egg or behave or read your Bible or whatever it might be. But Paul thinks that the antidote, really the the medication for whatever you're looking for in drunkenness is the spirit. Now, that's a bit confusing. So why is that the link? How is getting filled with the spirit the opposite of drunkenness? And what I want to do just for a few moments is be a little bit vulnerable with you and just share what's been going on in me at the times in my life before I was a disciple of Christ and after I've been a disciple of Christ where I've been getting drunk. 
And just to show you why I think the Spirit is the antidote. At different times in my life, I've been getting drunk because my life was dull, a bit boring, a bit stale. And the sheer fun and excitement of going out with my mates and drinking a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, and I become a little bit looser and feel a little bit less anxious and uptight socially, and I can just let go and have a bit of fun. But do you know what? That itch for life with a bit more life in it can only be met in relationship with God. Getting drunk often doesn't bring you more life. Even at best, it brings you more life and then it fades very quickly. But you can come to God, the God of life, the God of life to the full. It's not a cold command, don't get drunk. It's don't get drunk, be filled with the life of God. At other times I've got drunk because I wanted to be accepted. Everyone was doing it. And I just wanted to belong. Oh, Christians in halls of residence this week, don't you want to belong? Don't you want to be accepted? But in my insecurity, in my yearning for acceptance, in my deep longing to know I belong, I can be filled with the presence of God. The Spirit who teaches me, you're a child of God, Rich, who, who connects with my spirit and helps me cry out, Father, who I can know through the Holy Spirit that I have full acceptance before my maker, not just the randomers I've been put in a flat with, but the maker of heaven and earth says, I love you and you are mine. And the Spirit lets us know that experience. Other times I've got drunk because I was so heartbroken, bruised, angry, filled with pain because of how I'd been treated that I drank, drank, drank to escape, 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 distract, 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 numb, numb, numb. But it doesn't work. And instead, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. No one's telling you off for feeling like you want to drink to numb your pain. We're saying that doesn't work. Wouldn't you know the Spirit who comforts you in your pain, who can heal you in your pain, his counsel for your lostness, his intimacy where you've been rejected. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. And most recently and most vulnerably a few years ago, and that's a vague phrase, and it wasn't as many years ago as I wish it was, I got into a bit of trouble at a wedding where I probably had one or two too many glasses of wine in the day. And uh, I didn't serve dinner till like 8 o'clock. And it oh, was real tricky. Do you know why that happened to me? That happened to me not because I wanted to be a rebel and just drink. It happened to me because I gave a best man speech that bombed really badly. And I hurt my friend and I hurt the bride's family by some of the things I said. And I sat down at the end of it and uh, Ruth was there and Esther Lee was there and they could tell you how bad it was. Um, And I sat down and I felt like a little boy again and I felt like I was just so embarrassed and I felt like I'd failed my friend and in that moment without really even thinking it I needed to run somewhere and I, I, I looked and there's a glass of wine I drank a glass of wine I filled it and I drank a glass of wine filled it drank a glass of wine about 30 seconds had gone and I thought what am I doing and I wasn't 
flipping tables and headbutting people, but I, I turned in my humiliation and my shame to something that didn't care about me, didn't love me. Just a glass of wine wants me to drink more, so I spend more money on it. And I could have turned to the Spirit. And by God's grace, I want to be someone who turns to the Spirit in my shame. If you're here and you feel shame in this area or any area, I'm not having a go at you. I'm inviting you to a better way. Be filled with the life of God. Okay. So we're halfway through. And we've hit some sensitive subjects. So now, just to line it up as we head into land, 15 minutes on submission and slavery. (laughs) Three, submission. These verses include the instruction for wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. A verse that can be and has been and in many homes and communities to this day is being used as a weapon As I've prepared, I've sought to do a lot of work on this so as not to speak glibly or as one ignorant to the ways that this verse has been misused. And so I've read, not to be a geek and show off, but to try and care well for the church on this theme. I've read three books by three married Christian female theologians who believe that this verse is from God and who don't want to cut it out of the Bible and want us to live it out, but who want to boldly unveil the ways that this teaching and others like it has been used to subject women in general and wives in particular to oppression. And for today, building on their work, I want to invite you to have four considerations as you reflect on this theme. Number one, consider the command to all disciples in this passage. In verse 21, before any wife is called to submit to any husband, and so you know the definition I'm rolling with for that word is Rachel Green Miller's definition of yielding to another in love. Yielding to another in love. Before any wife is called to that, all Christians are called to that. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wherever we stand on these verses, we are all called to this. In every relationship, in every context, there's to be a desire to voluntarily yield to another in love. To prefer one another, honor one another, respect one another, serve one another. All Christian women, men, girls, boys, church members, church leaders, and any other category of member of the family of God is called to a countercultural submission to one another. And in the church, submission is all of our callings, but that has often conveniently been ignored. This is for all of us. Number two, consider the command to the husband. Often people uh, take from these verses that the husband is to do various things to his wife. He's to rule his wife. He's to rein in his wife. He's to oppress his wife. He's to demand that his wife submits to him. That's nowhere in the passage. Or he's to fix his wife. But in this passage, none of those verbs are there. The only verb that is there, not even the verb to lead in this passage... The only verb that's there attributed to the husband is agapeo, which means a costly giving love. 
Six times that word is used. Agapeo, 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 agapeo. It's a word used of God in Scripture. As in God so agapeoed the world that he gave his one and only son. It's used of the father as in the father agapeos the son and gives all things into his hand. And so an Ephesians 5 marriage has in it an Ephesians 5 husband, and an Ephesians 5 husband is one who agapeos, times six, who loves. My role with Ruth is not to rule her, not to quieten her, not to demand she agrees with me. And thankfully, some have taught in the past, but thankfully, given our career choices, not to earn more than her. That's not a thing. The only command I have in this passage for my relationship with Ruth is agapeo, 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 agapeo. So much so that I am called to mirror Christ's self-giving love for his church, where he gave himself to lift her up, to raise her up, to see her flourish, to see her be all she could be, and see her thrive and be honored. There are still questions with this passage, but consider the command to the husband. Third, consider the culture. From the work that I've read, I have it on good authority that wives in the Ephesian church would have been shocked with their jaw on the floor when this passage got read out, but not because of the instruction to wives, but because of the instruction to husbands. Because though household codes uh, teaching on how you're to live in the home were very common in the ancient world, in, in, in Christianity, and, and, and back to Aristotle, lots of thinkers were doing household codes. No one has ever called on husbands to do anything like this. For a moral code, let alone a religious text written by a man, to command of husbands that you agapeo yourself away like the crucified Messiah. Just consider the culture. Fourth, consider Christ and the church. The marriages that Paul dreams for, longs for, yearns for, prays for in the Ephesian church were ones that looked like Christ and the church. Paul says, this marriage stuff, you know this marriage stuff, it's referring to Christ and the church. It's an illustration for Christ and the church. Now, obviously, this needs to be said. It's so obvious that it shouldn't, but this needs to be said. That analogy has limits to it, doesn't it? So the wife isn't called to worship her husband as the risen Jewish Messiah. Like, that obviously isn't true. There are limits on this command, The wife isn't called to obey her husband's every command. The Bible teaches that. You honor God. But the major aspect that Paul highlights, how is it to mirror Christ and the church? The major emphasis in Paul is the oneness, the union. It says, uh, uh, this is why a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. There'll be one flesh. That's a mystery, but that's like Christ and the church. It's about the union, the oneness between two separate and distinct and different people who come together in a loving union. And so if you're applying these verses in a way that primarily pits husband and wife as opponents against each other, we're missing something from this passage Because Paul says, no, it's to be like the loving oneness 
between Christ and the church. Look, there are still questions, I know, and this is just scratching the surface. And at the end, I'll flag up these three books, and there are loads more, and we can all geek out on it. And I realize that this is sensitive stuff, but those are just four considerations that I wanted to bring you. Lastly, slavery. This passage of God's word says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely. And it says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Now, many have understandably, God bless you, it's okay. Hey, just let's take a breath for 30 seconds. Um, That noise there, and the noise earlier in worship, you know, the bang, that's fine. Like, obviously, we hope no one was, like, crushed or something, whatever happened over there. Um, but just to say, like, it, we take a breath in and we wonder, oh, what's happened? And we were doing, like, an emotional praying bit, weren't we? It's just so fine. Like, do we think it was silent in the upper room when the church met together? Of course it wasn't. Like, it's fine. Okay? Get out! Okay, let's, let's come back because we're, we're in serious ground. We've got about four minutes left. Let's come back in and let's see what Paul wants to say about this. Because many have understandably felt that Paul drops the ball here. Like this is his chance to clearly set the tone of Christian thinking about slavery forever. And he misses the chance, right? Like, he could clearly speak that it's an evil practice, and he misses that chance. And so, in not-so-distant history, you may well have heard the claim that these verses were then used to condone the transatlantic slave trade, the unspeakable evil practices of many American and British and Brummy Christians who worshipped Christ on Sunday, readying to buy and sell human beings on Monday. I want to bring a few considerations on this. Firstly, consider our history. The reason that this is a powerful objection to our faith is because these verses were indeed used for that purpose. We can hold up William Wilberforce all we like, but we can never escape what people did to other people citing this passage and claiming Jesus as their endorser in chief. Please, please never ever feel you have to deny that or wriggle out of it. You are not defending Jesus if you try and wriggle out of that. You are further misrepresenting him. We own it. It was evil. Secondly, consider the context. The setup that Paul is speaking into in this household code is different to the pictures that come to our mind when we hear the word slavery. The system in place in much of the Roman world was called bond service. That was a widespread system throughout the Roman Empire where people would be bound in service to a particular household for a particular time, sometimes as a way out of poverty, but I need to be really honest, sometimes they were harshly manipulated into this situation. Sometimes people chose it, sometimes people really didn't. 
And I think there are massive problems with that widespread Roman system. I would even call it, personally, an unjust broken system. But the Roman practice of bond service is not the same thing as what slavery then looked like in the transatlantic slave trade. It wasn't uh, going to another land and stealing a human being from their land and their culture and the race-based chattel slavery that many Christians have supported to our shame. It isn't the same. In fact, 1 Timothy lists slave traders, or in some translations, man-stealers, as among those who will face the severest judgment of God. And the narrative of Scripture repeatedly sees slaves call out for freedom, and the God of the Bible answers with liberation, most famously in the book of Exodus. And Paul encourages Philemon, whose bondservant has run away, to not utilize his legal rights to reinstate him as a bondservant, but instead welcome him as a brother in Christ, as a free man. So there are serious questions. And the more you look into it, the more serious questions you find. But here, Paul isn't supporting the transatlantic slave trade. He's speaking to disciples of Jesus who are part of a broken system ingrained in the culture that has huge flaws in how it's being lived out, like many would describe in our day, for example, many would see this, the prison system or the justice system that's widespread and has got flaws. And he's saying, if you find yourself within that broken system, here's how to live for Jesus in that system. That's what he's doing. Thirdly, consider the dignity in these words for the underprivileged. In Paul's words, the bondservants themselves are addressed as persons, giving them dignity, giving them agency, treating them as persons worthy of addressing, and even saying that they will be rewarded too for the good that they do before God. And they are addressed first, because in the kingdom of God, the last shall be first. And fourthly and lastly, consider the accountability for those in privilege in these verses. The masters, the ones with the power and privilege in that dynamic, were called to serve their bondservants. Let me say that sentence again. Serve their bondservants. Remembering that there's no favoritism with God and that we all serve one and the same master. These words reveal that the God of the Bible will hold all people then and all people now and all people in here who have any position of privilege and power to account for how they treat their fellow human beings. Four considerations with lots and lots of questions remaining. Now, for time's sake, um, I'm going to stop there. And we've had to do some work today, haven't we? We've had this, at times it's been preaching, at times I've tried to be teaching just to help us. We've had to lean in. We've been tempted, maybe are tempted right now, to harden our hearts as we hear his voice. But whether these words make you rejoice or realize or resist, let's not harden our hearts. Let's seek to lean in and learn together and live for him together about what it looks like to represent this Jesus in our day. I'm going to just flag up the books, because I like looking like a geek. (laughs) Firstly, if you're interested in how Christianity 
speaks to women. Jesus Through the Eyes of Women by Rebecca McLaughlin. Not this one. Not this one. Liberated by Karen Saul. How the Bible exalts and dignifies women. This one I'm four-fifths of the way through. Beyond Authority and Submission, Women and Men in Marriage, Church and Society by Rachel Green Miller. And all three of those uh, women would believe that this verse isn't to be cut out, that they want to apply it and live it out well, and they want to help us do that. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about um, the Christian uh, history and its relationship with slavery, I want to speak about, we need to talk about race, Ben Lindsay. We've done a book group on this book, fantastic book in general, but a chapter on scripture and slavery that is really important reading if you want to be a generous-hearted, kind, biblical disciple today. You don't have to read the book. You should care about these issues, though. Um, And then one that I can't wave at you because uh, someone in the church is borrowing it at the moment, but Reading While Black by Esau McCauley, uh, looking at the uh, painful experience at times of reading scripture as a black man in America and how he finds hope in the scriptures ultimately. Uh, If you're interested in uh, Don't Get Drunk With Wine, but Be Filled With The Spirit, The Forgotten God by Francis Chan, book all about the Holy Spirit, Um, really beautiful book, quick read, easy read, uh, lovely stuff. If you're new to the Holy Spirit, your church background is a bit different, really recommend that as a way in. Uh, And this one is the thing about flipping it. The Bible has some stuff in it, doesn't it? God is stranger than we thought. And if you want to not just shut your eyes and pretend for the rest of your Christian life, but you want to look at the stuff that is hard in the Bible and see what God's really like. God is stranger by Krish Kandaya. Um, There we go. Jesus, help us to live for you, help us to love you, help us to serve you. Um, We pray, Holy Spirit, fill us. We just need you. Otherwise, it's all just words and slides. We just need you. Holy Spirit, make us a community where we can help one another, serve one another, love one another, submit to one another. Um, Just want to serve you. Just want to serve you, God. Would you help us do that this week? Amen.